Today, we've got an interview. It's a great one. I chat with Jonathan Swanson, the co-founder of Thumbtack, PowerSet, and Athena about all sorts of stuff, including ideation, scaling a marketplace, finding a wedge, and how to differentiate between things that are kind of working and won't get you anywhere and things that are really working and will get you somewhere. We also dig in on working with an EA to scale yourself during the early days, which is what his current business, Athena, helps people do. He was nice enough to put together a pretty great deal for Idea to Startup listeners, where you get an EA for 160 hours for free, a $3,000 value. Pretty freaking cool. I've got the link in the show notes if you're interested. And if you're nodding your head vigorously when he talks about how to scale yourself and do CEO tasks towards the end of the interview, it might be worth checking out. Okay, let's get to Jonathan. Hello, I am Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. And today we have a great guest, Jonathan Swanson, currently the founder of Athena, a company that'll match you with world-class executive assistants, and also the co-founder of Thumbtack, a company you've definitely heard of and probably used that helps you hire local professionals, everything from handymen to DJs. Thumbtack was last valued at $3.2 billion back in 2021. Jonathan also runs PowerSet, a program that gives entrepreneurs $1 million to fund other entrepreneurs. This is actually the second time we've had both halves of a married couple on the pod. One of our very first guests was Jonathan's wife, Catherine, who talked about building BetterBack, specifically through crowdfunding. So it's good to have you, Jonathan. Welcome, and thank you for coming. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so there are two really big things I want to cover today. Um, as I sort of mentioned before we jumped on here, a lot of our listeners are super early stage folks. They are working through ideas while they still have a job, or maybe they like just quit, but they're fighting their way towards product market fit. And a lot of them happen to be work or tend to be working on marketplace startups. So I think the early days of Thumbtack will be super interesting to dive in on, like how you validated supply side, demand side, like thought through a marketplace, how you landed on it. I'm personally curious because like, that is an idea that so many people have tried and like basically everyone, but you all failed. And so it's it was, super it was painful. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I, I want to definitely spend the second half chatting about EAs, um, Athena specifically, but even more, um, I've done some research on you. It's very clear that Thumbtack was built with a huge like offshore um, workforce and that is really interesting and, and, and relevant for our folks who might be able to, you know, may, maybe limited in the amount of time that they can spend each week on their idea. So figuring out how to build systems. Um, so with all of that, um, let's jump into Thumbtack stuff right off the bat. Like I'm, I'm interested cool. in Sounds good. how you got, how you got started and then I'll just ping you with questions as you tell me the story. Cool. Sounds great. Yeah. I started like many of your kind of the people go through your accelerator. We, I was working at the white house. So I had a full-time job. I actually had to ask my boss permission to start, uh, ideating on the side. And how'd that conversation time, go? <laughs> you know, it was the end of the administration. So everyone was heading out pretty soon. So he wasn't, uh, he wasn't too put off by it. And, uh, he was actually an entrepreneur himself. And oh, cool. so he was, he was encouraging, um, and I just met every Sunday at my apartment with a couple of friends and brainstormed ideas. And I was motivated to start a business like, you know, yourself. I want to do something big, want to challenge myself, but didn't know what the idea was. And so every Sunday we get together and the way we oriented the process was what are problems that affect not just us, but hundreds of millions or even billions of people. 
So that was the starting point. And mm. every Sunday we would chase down different ideas. And most of our ideas were dumb and, you know, <laughs> or idiotic and didn't go anywhere. We had like a pet rental idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we'd keep coming back to this one idea of services and giving people more time. And on the one hand, we saw Amazon totally redefining how you buy products. On the other hand, with services, a handyman, a dog walker, house cleaner, people were still using flyers on bulletin boards in coffee shops. And it just felt inevitable that this whole class of service would move online. And we you know, were dumb and young and had no idea how hard it would be. And so we thought we could do it. And so we, we jumped in, moved to San Francisco, and started a thumbtack in a house. And we've been through all the ups and downs startups go through. We've had you know good years where we've hired hundreds of people, have had layoffs, uh, have had you know fundraises where got our ass kicked and rejected forty two times uh, over many months, and have had fundraises where raised a hundred million dollars in a few days. Um, so really, seen all the the ups and downs, and been fortunate to make it pretty far. Now we've got a team of a thousand uh, companies getting ready to go public. And um, it feels like uh, we now have the opportunity to truly build an Amazon of services. And it took us a lot longer than I think we expected, but uh, it's cool to have made it this far. Very cool. And um, I'm super interested in a lot of this, but I want to go back. If you still remember, um, those Sunday meetings are really interesting to me. And I think we have a lot of founders who do that with like friends and kick around ideas. Do you remember what the framework or the, like what you were looking for when you tested out the ideas and like what you saw in a dog rental or didn't see in a dog rental or what, what were the signals or things that you looked for? Yeah. So first question uh, was, is this problem affect lots of people? So just what's the scale of the problem? Is it me? <laughs> is it millions of people? Is it billions? And then um, once we had an idea or a problem and kind of a solution set, we would go hunting out to see what was already in market. And so after our Sunday session, we'd kind of divide and conquer. Someone would go do a bunch of research and we'd come back the next week and be like, you know what? There's actually already a dozen people doing this business. They're doing it pretty well. You know, I don't think we have any real edge here. And uh, this local services was the one that we did find competitors, but they were all just mediocre. It was Craigslist, it was Yelp. It didn't feel like a full booking experience. And so it felt like we had a potential edge there. And so it was really as simple as how big's the problem? And do we think there's a solution that the world hasn't, uh, you know, hasn't built? And in terms of like, so it's really interesting because we get a lot of founders who come in and they're like very passionate about a specific thing. And there's like this, problem or idea that they've almost like tied their identity to. And mm -hmm. then when they go out testing it, they see something that isn't there because they're kind of putting their finger on the scale because they want something to be true. So it sounds, and I think there are like pluses and minuses to each. I'm curious your opinion on it, but where it's like, if you're a domain expert, you might have more knowledge going into it, but you all were sort of objectively looking at ideas as if they were like sitting on an operating table and you were saying like, is this worth our time or not? I'm curious about, the passion piece, like, were you kind of quickly passionate about solving this problem once you found it or? Yeah. You know, my analogy is it's a little bit like dating and getting married. It's like when you're dating, you need to be a little clinical of like, is this person right fit for me? Like I may like spending time, but 
you know, if they don't want to have kids and I do, then that's not a good fit. And so the, you know, there's an emotional part to dating, but there's, you need to kind of be serious and make sure that uh, all the boxes are checked. And I think that's kind of the ideating phase of startups. You need to apply that same sort of ruthlessness to ideas um, and unattached, unemotional ruthlessness. But once you decide to jump in, I think it's kind of like engagement or marriage, like you're going for it <laughs> and you're committing to something for ideally decades, right? It's like no, no generational business has ever been built in less than a decade. And so that's kind of like success is a decade. And so if the idea is not something that you're passionate enough about uh, to spend a decade on, then, you know, I wouldn't do it. And that's actually one of the most common pieces of advice I give to startup founders is like, if in one decade from now you're working on this, would that be success? Or mm -hmm. if you don't like the idea enough to be working on that long, then it's, it's not the right thing. And for me, you know, um, I wasn't necessarily passionate about plumbers or handymen in particular, but I was very passionate about this idea of empowering small businesses. And like, man, if we could build a platform at Thumbtack, we could empower millions or tens of millions of people to start small businesses who wouldn't otherwise. And for me, that was super motivating and is still motivating today. Very cool. Yeah, I, I love that idea about, you know, if this is it success if you're still working on it in a decade, because we got a lot of people who come in and say like, I see an opportunity and like right now it's chat GPT plus restaurant reviews or like whatever. And it seems like they're looking for an opportunistic quick win. And it sounds like those don't tend to work. Um, so quick question on getting started. So like you see this opportunity for a marketplace and I, I mean, objectively, like I can't think of a more daunting marketplace to go after because there's like lots of little verticals. There's very little structure. It's so, so how did you think about it? Like supply demand side, how did you get in touch with either? How'd you get going? I mean, <laughs> it's not false humility to say we didn't, we didn't know where we're getting into. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think there's just like an element to that of all startups is like a little being a little naive is helpful for for everything because you don't know how much how painful it's going to be. But for us, we uh, our kind of universe was local services, and um, we did an analysis of uh, kind of all the different categories in home and events and business services. And there's about a thousand categories, and so when we started, we said what are the ways that we can onboard professionals across lots of categories at scale? Because if we pick one category, it's going to take us too long. And if we have an expensive acquisition method, um, it, it won't be feasible. And that was really the first unlock for us was finding a way to onboard and sell service professionals at scale at a very low cost. And um, I can go into exactly how we did that. It, it partly involved people in the Philippines, but we were basically able to onboard hundreds of thousands of SMBs for, you know, a dollar a pop. And wow. when, when I talk to, you know, marketplace founders, um, this is one of the first things I look for is do they have a creative and unfair, uh, acquisition method because marketplaces are so powerful once you have the network effects. But the flip side of that is that getting network effects is really freaking hard. And so unless you have some creative or unique way to crack those network effects, uh, you're likely going to fail. Hmm. So do you think early on, so I later on in the interview, I, I was going to ask a question, but it might make sense to talk about it now. 
Um, I love thinking about examples of like an idea and thinking about how you would start it. Um, so let's take a very, not common, but one we get a fair amount, which is basically like connecting local farms to restaurants and that sort of marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so would you, is, is the first thing you would look for is, is that to like validate that idea would be that unfair acquisition method or. Yeah. I'd say, you know, you need to sign up restaurants and you set up farms and I would say, what are the, what are your acquisition strategies? If it's making phone calls, uh, I don't believe that's going to work. <laughs> uh, if it's some sort of scalable email marketing with uh, someone in the Philippines in the loop to help close uh, close the conversion, and that sounds more compelling. You're kind of leveraging overseas talent. The email marketing can be very scalable. Um, and so, you know, when you first start, I think YC has this kind of like do things that don't scale. I think there is some logic to like, yeah, it makes sense to call the first dozen yourself, understand their needs, and really get to know the customers. But then to have a chance to build a scalable marketplace, you need to have some an acquisition channel that scales. And um, typically that is not just paid advertising or sales because that's really expensive. Um, that makes sense for super expensive SaaS companies, but for a marketplace, um, you typically need more of an edge. And you know, we did email marketing at, at Thumbtack. We did uh, some uh, shenanigans with Craigslist back in the day, which I'm happy to talk about. And what those channels are kind of change over time because uh, you find a, a growth hack that worked for a few years and then it disappears and the next generation has to find kind of the next growth hack. I love shenanigans. Let's talk Craigslist mm-hmm. shenanigans. Yeah. So, you know, when we, we were trying to get uh, these professionals signed up and um, Craigslist was one of the biggest uh, kind of places people were going to find uh, local services uh, at the time. And so we naturally started emailing uh, providers, uh, service pros on Craigslist, and that provided uh, some small amount of signups. But then as we talked to our pros, we discovered that the reason they were using Craigslist is to get clients and they would go post an ad on Craigslist every couple of weeks. And it's kind of crazy to think this is how it works, but you had to go repost your ad every couple of weeks because it was just, you know, sequentially uh, listed. And so we created a tool at Thumbtack that would automatically post their ad on Craigslist for them. And they could set the frequency. It could be every couple of days or every week. And this just saved them a lot of time. And the ad was pre-populated with their Thumbtack profile. And so it would drive clients to their Thumbtack profile, uh, which had the reviews and allowed them to book and had all these kind of advantages. And so on the one hand, we were just helping them do something they were already doing themselves. But on the other hand, we were helping drive a tremendous amount of traffic uh, to uh, Thumbtack. So I think at some point, um, something like uh, 25% uh, percent of all service listings on Craigslist were thumbtack postings <laughs> from this auto poster. <laughs> and that scaled up to a, quite a large of, um, a volume. We signed up a number of pros and customers that way. And then at some point, Craigslist dropped the hammer and said, it's not cool. <laughs> we, don't, we, don't, we don't want you to do this. Um, and we had to move on to kind of the next growth uh, mechanism. I love that. That is like, that combines a few things that that we try and get our founders to do like the first being the ethnographic research thing, like watching how your customers actually solve mm. the problem now and looking mm-hmm. for ways to do it better. And then like 
that that was going to be one of my my next questions about how do you build trust with both sides of the marketplace when they when no one knows who you are and it sounds like just solving a real early problem for them like providing value just immediately was the way yeah for us it was you know in the long term we want to connect uh pros with people who want to hire them that's the that's the ultimate goal but since we don't have any customers at the beginning what can we provide a value and so we said what are tools that we could give away potentially for free that our pros would love to have and that would endear them to us and so we considered lots of things that were kind of adjacent and we're just like if we can make our pros happy and kind of get in the world we're more likely to build a business that can uh, eventually create a marketplace and so that craigslist tool was the one that uh, really scaled and and created enormous value for us i love that because if you went up to them and you're like hey jump on our marketplace they'd say no because you've got the whatever the the that problem is the andrew chen problem that i'm blanking on yeah, um exactly very cool i love that um so i i have a question about risk um not necessarily personal risk. Like I think we can talk through that yeah. separately, but more um, customer risk. So mm. how did you think about, or did you even think about the early risk of like you're setting up people to do stuff and I can see how there would be worry about like, maybe it was bad or like what happens if things go wrong? Did you think about that or were you, how'd you, like I could see that being friction point. Oh, of course. I mean, you're inviting another human into your house, uh, yeah. to, you know, to take photos at your wedding, like, to help you move, <laughs> move your home. Like these are very intimate, personal things with your most valuable asset, your home or your child or wedding, all sorts of stuff. So we took it very seriously from the beginning and um, we did a number of things. So kind of background checks, as uh, you might expect. Uh, we also leveraged team in the Philippines. Um, to do more manual checks. And so would check the reviews online. There's a bunch of kind of um, uh, databases where you can get licensed that there was no service <laughs> that did this uh, automatically, no API, because the licensing databases are across 50 different states. And so we just built a tool on top of all these databases. And then it had someone in the Philippines manually check um, all of our pros for their licenses. And this is something that, you know, Craigslist wasn't doing, Yelp wasn't doing, and really provided a lot more kind of trust in going the extra mile. Um, and, you know, then ultimately, once we got to the scale of, uh, you know, more recently and having kind of the capital, we could put insurance premiums behind uh, the product and really back it up more fully. Um, obviously, you can't typically do that when you're a startup in a house. Um, but we did all the, you know, all the things we could with the, uh, with the resources we had. Uh, in the early days to really like engender as much trust as possible. And for us, it was just going further than everyone else was. You can't get to a hundred percent, but if you, if you do more than everyone else, you've, uh, you've really made a good faith effort. Very cool. Um, yeah, I, I built a dating app back in like 2010, 2011. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time it like really clicked that like, Oh, we're sending two strangers out on a date together. Mm -hmm. Like there, this is a little bit scary. It made me hesitate a bit. Yeah, uh, it's the, there's magic in human connection, but there's there's risk. And I think, um, you know, startups have to kind of dial up how seriously you take it, depending on kind of the market you're handling. Obviously, if you're in healthcare like Theranos, you need to be taking it really seriously. Um, <laughs> and uh, other markets are, are less serious. Cool. Um, one more question on this before we jump into the how, how you leveraged offshore um, yep. support. 
Um, was there anything that you did early on that worked disproportionately well, like something that maybe surprised you that maybe is a method versus a tactic that could be helpful for folks who are like early stage working, you know, five, six hours a week trying to do the things that actually drive their real value? I mean, it's a good bridge to the next topic, which is just leveraging talent. Like the thing, it was it was the thing that really unlocked value for us in the early days mm. was how can we make our dollars go further? We don't have that much money. Uh, there's a few of us founders and we need to have disproportionate impact. And to do that, we need to build leverage talent um, at uh, the right price. And so, you know, for uh, Thumbtack, the origin story for us hiring outside the country was we had all these service pros signing up. They would create profiles of themselves and the profiles you know, weren't written that well. <laughs> All capital letters, no sentence structure. So my founders and I would proofread them ourselves to help our small businesses put their best foot forward. And um, this clearly wasn't scalable. And so I, I went to uh, Upwork and posted a job ad for a proofreader. And I had dozens of applications from all around the world, um, including the United States, Jamaica, India, the Philippines. And I gave like 20 different um, people a trial where they just proofread 10 different profiles. And then I reviewed them. And to my absolute shock, <laughs> this woman in the Philippines beat everyone, including the Americans, on huh. quality, not on price, <laughs> on quality. And of course, she was also you know, significantly less expensive than the others. And for me, having never worked with someone, you know, outside the U.S., this was just like a jaw-dropping, eye-opening moment where I was like, holy shit, there are talented, hardworking people everywhere. And it sounds kind of obvious, but now it's like smacking me in the face. And so I hired this woman whose name is Mikan. Um, she, um, this was one of her first jobs working remotely. Um, and, you know, she grew up in the Philippines. Her dad um, earned two bucks a day, didn't have much money. Um, and, um, I trained her as a proofreader and she was so good. I was like, Hey, we going to need a team of proofreaders. I want you to become a manager of them. And so I helped train her and she started managing five and then 10 and 20 proofreaders. And, wow. you know, fast forward a few years, Mikan was managing, uh, upwards of a thousand people. Huh. And this was kind of a life-changing moment for both me and Mikan because this woman who had never managed someone before in the Philippines, who was earning a couple bucks an hour, um, came in and transformed our business. Um, and she transformed herself. Um, you know, she eventually left to go get her MBA in France was something she had never conceived was possible. Um, and so that really gave me, yeah, it's like a, a heart and a, inspiration for helping other people have life-changing experiences like this. Um, and, you know, the things we were able to accomplish with this team in the Philippines is really what uh, allowed Thumbtack to differentiate itself in the early days. We were able to onboard pros at a lower cost. We were able to proofread their profiles, add trust uh, and, and positive signals uh, from these teams. And these were things that our competitors weren't doing because they weren't leveraging talent um, in the Philippines at the same way. Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's amazing. I, I'm almost speechless. Like that's, that's very, I can kind of see how, how that story happened. But when you look at it, if you just sort of said like we had a team of a thousand people working in the Philippines, it sounds unbelievable, but the, the process <laughs> yeah. makes, makes sense. 
Um, yeah, I mean, for us, we just start with one. <laughs> a thousand <laughs> sounds intimidating and it's insane. But yeah. we're like, we hire one proofreader and we're like, well, that's useful. Let's have five, 10. And then we're like, you know, uh, in the early days, we actually, I'm just remembering this, but the way we matched customers and professionals was with our team in the Philippines. We hadn't yet built an automated engine that could do it hmm. at scale. And so a customer request would come in and we'd have a search engine inside our admin portal and someone in the Philippines would go through, find the, the professionals that are the right fit, select them, hit send, and they would get sent the message. And um, these teams helped us kind of scale up the marketplace and then we built automations behind it. Now, of course, that's all completely automated, uh, but it wouldn't have been possible without um, people in the Philippines at first. And it really... Um, uh, wouldn't have been possible with our like financing, right? We just didn't have the money to hire expensive engineers from Google uh, in those early days. Um, but we could hire uh, a talented person in the Philippines and that created the bridge to then building a kind of more tech uh, business over time. What were the challenges um, of managing someone overseas, someone like, had you ever done anything like this before? Like what were the, and I know that there's some delegation stuff we're going to get into shortly, and maybe that's a decent bridge to it. But um, what were the biggest things that struck you right away? I mean, the the truth is working with people in the Philippines, they're just so warm hearted and lovely and kind uh, that it was just kind of striking. Uh, it was a little culture shock in a good way. And they're just a very grateful people. So it was... Yeah, just it was beautiful to work with them. Um, you know, I think I was learning to become a manager for the first time. So I was just learning how to do all the things a good manager does is, um, you know, give lots of good feedback, give encouragement, you know, give uh, critical uh, ways they can improve what they're doing. Um, and, you know, for me, a breakthrough was really when my team got big enough was flying to the Philippines, spending time in their homes, really understanding their culture um, more deeply. Um, but, you know, I think in this era of kind of Zoom, managing someone in the Philippines and someone in San Francisco is not that much different today. There are mm -hmm. some like cultural things you should be aware of, but I think the barrier is really much smaller. And so people should be much more kind of open to the idea of hiring someone anywhere. Awesome. Um, so I want to jump into Athena, um, but to close the loop on Thumbtack, it seems like you all tried lots of things um, and some of them worked and, and, you know, we're hearing about the ones that worked, but like, I'm sure some of them, lots of things didn't work. No, most and things I'm, didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about process for, um, I think that's one of the things that's hardest when you start working on your own thing is recognizing that you're going to do 10 things and seven of them aren't going to work and three are, and that's, that's actually like good or, mm -hmm. you know, one or two will work. Um, how did you all think about focusing and testing and like, You've, you've told me about things that worked that are clearly like not the first ideas that came to mind. How did you think about creative ideation and any feedback loops for whether things were working or not and testing and dropping things that didn't work and, and all that? Yeah. So, you know, I think we had, um, I don't think there's any magic there other than it was kind of broad ideation of say, what are all the different ways we can acquire servers pros? Uh, we can, you know, email, we can do advertising, we can do sales, we could do flyers, which I actually remember trying. <laughs> I like, I hand delivered <laughs> flyers, uh, around the, the city at one point. 
and we stack rank them by impact and effort and um, then start testing them. And, you know, if you were to ask me what are all the things we tested and that failed, I, I honestly would struggle to think of them because there's probably so many, but you, you try things for a week and the signals are poor or bad and you kind of move on to the next. And the cool thing with tech is that you find one thing that works, you can ride that to a billion dollar company. Um, you've got to find one thing that really works. And I think the danger zone is when people find things that kind of work <laughs> mm. and um, they keep trying on the thing that kind of works instead of hunting for the thing that really um, can grow the business. And that's my main push to earlier stage entrepreneurs is like, be ruthless about your standards for what's really working in terms of product market fit and acquisition methods, because you want something that can really scale to the moon. And if it's a uphill battle from zero to a hundred customers, then it's not going to get easier typically. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I think that that's been something that we've had founders kind of go through the program with one idea and beat their heads against a wall for a year or two years or sometimes three. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they'll try something else and, you know, they're long gone from the program by then, but then they'll email me and say like, Oh, this is like, it's night and day from. Mm -hmm. And so if you've never done it before, I can see how it'd be tough to figure out like what good actually looks like and what growth is supposed to look like. Um, yeah, and it's hard to give founders advice on this topic because sure. the truth is sometimes you can bang your head for three years and then you have a breakthrough and it's there's huge upside. And other times you beat your head for three years and then it takes another three years. And it's uh, it's really case by case. I think the kind of like generic advice on this topic isn't very useful. It's more kind of specific to the company yeah. and founder and market. Um, so... Cool. So this is a great transition into Athena, what you're doing now, or one of the things you're doing now. And this is really cool for me because um, I think this is something that our listeners will, that this will, is just like top of mind to them, figuring out an EA or figuring out like when you're ready to do something like that, or kind of what the, what you'll get for it, what sort of level jump is created or can be created. And this is what you're focused on now. So tell me about, tell me about Athena. Yeah, so yeah, I had this kind of life-changing experience hiring Mikan at Thumbtack and leveraging f talent in the Philippines. And as we built this team in the Philippines, um, one of the team members became my own EA. Her name was Marnie. And she helped me with all the things you might first expect, calendar and inbox and travel. Uh, but I'm a very experimental person. And so every week I'd say, hey, let's try one new experiment. And... Um, you know, like most experience experiments, most of them don't work, but lots of them did. And we just kept layering on more and more successful delegations. And so, you know, one week I said, Hey, I'm spending all my time at Thumbtack. I have like, uh, all my friends are at Thumbtack. I don't even have friends outside the business. Could you help me make some friends? I was like, let's <laughs> plan dinner parties at my house, uh, once a month where we just invite founders. I don't know. And I'll get to know them. And so Marnie helped me organize this. And every month I'd have a founder dinner at my house. And I made most of my best friends through this, including Catherine, uh, who's my wife now. Um, and that was all thanks to Marnie. And then Marnie's helping plan our wedding. And then she's helping <laughs> us, you know, raise our kids now. Um, and she helped me scale from, you know, a leader of 
of no people at Thumbtack to a leader of a thousand plus. And that was all possible because of her giving me uh, tremendous leverage. And so uh, that experience was life-changing for me. And I wanted to bring that to, uh, you know, thousands of entrepreneurs because I think having an EA is really the key enabler to uh, scaling yourself and scaling your business. And I think uh, most startup founders should have an assistant um, very early, uh, earlier than people probably expect, um, and should invest in that relationship because it can compound uh, over a decade. And so we started Athena with the mission of helping founders um, scale themselves uh, as they scale their business. And uh, we've been at it for a few years. We got we help over a thousand uh, clients. Uh, got a team of over a thousand. And uh, you know, along the way, we've learned a lot about the art and science of delegation and are really, you know, our mission is to really fine tune the science uh, of delegation. It's kind of been this amorphous concept for a long time, but we see very clear uh, trends and signals and uh, types of delegation that have emerged uh, overseeing all of these um, clients and happy to share uh, all, all about that, but it's, uh, I think a journey that people should start right when they start a company and, mm. and invest in for the long term. Yeah. I, I'd love to hear about it because it's one of the things you, that like founders are always told kind of similar to the advice before where it's, you know, not all that useful to tell someone like, well, you have to delegate. It's like, okay, I have no idea what that means or when I should start or what, again, like what, what tasks yeah, way- that will really help. The way I think about it is uh, your job is to accomplish uh, an inhuman amount of things and you are the constraint in your business. When you start, it's ultimately you, like whatever you get done gets done. And if you don't do it, it doesn't get done. And so the question is, how can you create way more leverage for the hours you put in? And so instead of thinking about kind of abstractly, what are the things to delegate? I would think, what are the things you're focused on? And as an early stage founder, that's probably finding customers. Okay, how can an assistant help you find customers? I'm happy to talk about a number of ways that, you know, I've done that. You know, uh, another thing you're working on is fundraising. How can an assistant help you fundraise? Um, Another thing you do is hiring. Uh, My EA helps me hire constantly, Um, helped me, you know, source candidates, helps me uh, find referrals. Um, And so I really start with like, what are your top goals? And then how can your assistant enable um, all of those? And typically, you know, uh, a world-class delegator can find places almost everywhere. Now, there might be some things like if you're building a technical product from scratch, (laughs) uh, that's a place the assistant's probably not going to be as helpful. Um, But in kind of all other domains, um, yeah, assistant can help, uh, yeah, create more time for you. And, you know, I have this, uh, I would say, like, if you don't have an assistant, you are the assistant. And your job is not to be an assistant. Your job is to be the CEO uh, or the founder. And so the, the more you can abstract away from your day-to-day so you can focus on the things only you can do, uh, the more leverage and more success you'll have. I think the idea of um, the finding customers is, is a, an attractive one because you know, early on, you're trying to speak with as many customers as you can. You're trying to interact, like even when you're in the ideation stage, and that tends to be a huge bottleneck. It just takes people a really long time and the feedback loops are long. You might reach out to someone and two weeks later, they get back to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious to dig in on that. And we can either use the example of the farms and restaurants if you want to have something to anchor to or. Yeah, let's just talk about Athena because we're actually working on this sure. right now. We've, yeah. uh, you know, Athena is kind of scaled beyond the 
MVP phase and now we're in the scaling phase where we're adding, you know, hundreds of clients a month. And um, as we do that, we want to scale supply and demand uh, in uh, in unison. And so we've been starting to think for the first time, or like, what are the communities and places where we can find more customers, mm. kind of like your podcast. And one of the obvious places is, well, there's lots of startup communities. There's startup founder groups, you know, mothers in tech. There's, um, you know, uh, Substack writers. There's podcasters, YouTubers who are giving advice on starting uh, businesses. And so, you know, if we didn't have a team in the Philippines or an assistant, I would just go manually start collecting those. And that would take literally months of time to do it exhaustively. And the truth is you wouldn't do it exhaustively because if you're doing it yourself, you would go spend, you know, a week and then you'd cut it off. But because we have, um, you know, uh, plenty of assistants at Athena, we're like, let's find every single one. And so we just started with kind of what's the high level target. We want to find communities where people need more leverage. Um, let's find 10 examples in each of these categories. And then we can have an assistant go flesh out not 10 more or hundred more, but thousands more at a scale that is unthinkable to someone who doesn't have an assistant. And that is really the key thing is like when you start doing things that are unthinkable uh, to someone who doesn't have an assistant, now you have an edge because you're doing things that other people aren't doing. Um, and so that's just like one example of how leverage an assistant can yeah, help you find customers and do it in a different shade of way that separates you from your competitors. And when do you think, so you mentioned that, you know, earlier than you think is when you should start this. So for, th this is like one of the big reasons I'm so excited for this episode is like, what do you think about the founders who are working on something five, six, seven hours a week and have a full-time job? And, you know, how do you think about them thinking about this? Look, I would make it your first hire. Um, if you're working a full-time job and you don't have capital, you uh, likely don't have the money to hire a full-time employee in the U.S., right? It's going to be six figures and that's just not feasible um, if you're, unless you're, you're rich or <laughs> you have a really high paying job. Um, and, but if you have a decent paying job, you can hire assistant in the Philippines. Um, and yeah, maybe you have to cut some spending elsewhere, but that is totally feasible. And that means you're going from just you and your co-founders who are working part-time on this to having someone full-time who is pushing your ideas forward when you're sleeping, when you're working. And that momentum uh, really uh, is, is really helpful. So, you know, it, it's not possible for everyone if you're, you know, if you don't have enough income to, to afford kind of 10, 20, 30K a year on assistant, then you're going to have to wait until you raise some funding or have some revenue. But for, you know, anyone with a higher paying job, I would say, you know, once you have an idea you're excited about, I would hire an assistant out of the gate and that's going to compound the progress you make. Amazing. Um, and, and you have, you sent over a document that has some like principles of delegation methods of delegation that I thought were pretty fascinating. Um, and I think that is one of the mental bottlenecks for folks hiring someone is like, all right, I'm gonna hire someone. And then what am I going to do? Like, how do I manage them? How do I think about, you know, think about that? Yeah. Um, I'm curious if you could jump in. Yeah. So, um, I'll start with the levels of delegation. This is, um, 
you know, we, we've seen a thousand different entrepreneurs go through the delegation journey from novice to world class. And what's clear is people who get to world class all go through the same path. And basically mm-hmm. everyone starts at the first level, which is novice. And the novice level is what I call task oriented delegation. That's just delegating a single task. It's like, hey, my friend's birthday's coming up. Can you order some flowers? Um, that is a fine way to start. It's the way almost all people delegate to their EA, um, but it's also the least powerful um, and the least leverage. Um, and it's really just stream of consciousness delegation. The next mm-hmm. level of delegation um, is a kind of intermediate level and that's project-based delegation. That's where instead of saying, order some flowers for my friend's birthday, you say, hey, my friend's birthday is coming up. Uh, let's plan a party. Let's get a guest list. Uh, here's some you know gifts you want to do. And you have maybe a dozen different tasks underneath the project. Now, project-oriented delegation is much more planful, organized. It requires you to have the skills to like break things up into discrete steps uh, that are logical and coherent, and then delegate them all at once. You know, this can be 10 times more powerful than delegating uh, by mm. task, but it does take uh, take some pro- practice. And you know, project-oriented delegation, to really master it, you have to also master what I call recurring or trigger-based projects. And so, you know, for me, we have a project where uh, one of my assistants uh, reviews my spending and my angel checks and my balance sheet, and we get a P&L and a balance sheet at the end of every month. And so this was a big project once with tons of, you know, dozens of subtasks, uh, but now it's recurring. And so after I delegated once and gave feedback a couple of times, it just recurs in the background. And now I don't even have to delegate it. And that's the most powerful type of delegation, something you set up that just recurs in the background forever. Um, so that's the, that's the intermediate delegation. The next level of delegation, more advanced delegation, is process-oriented delegation. And this is when you think of yourself as an algorithm. And you think of how do I make decisions and how can I export my thinking onto paper or into a long voice note in a way that clarifies my algorithm for my EA. Um, You know, this comes more naturally to kind of engineering um, oriented uh, founders, uh, but this is a really powerful way of delegating because you're not just delegating a task, you're delegating a way of thinking. And when your EA ingests this process of, hey, Jonathan likes, you know, to have founder dinners. And I could say, hey, I want to invite, you know, 10 people to founder dinner, go do it. That would be a pretty bad way of delegating because they don't know when you want to do it, who to invite. But I couldn't say, here's how I think about hosting a founder dinner. Uh, I want to have, you know, a good diversity of different opinions or backgrounds. I want people who have all raised, you know, more than X million in capital or have more than this many employees. And I literally create an algorithm and I say, now go take this algorithm and go see if you can find guests that fit that. Then they come back with some results and you say, oh, actually, there's a couple other things on here that I'd forgotten. Let's update the algorithm. Um, And that iteration then is teaching your A how you think. And so the best delegators are always delegating with this process orientation in mind so that they're not just delegating a task or a project, but they're delegating their preferences and their way of thinking so that their EA can, um, can, can learn how they think. So that's, that's process oriented delegation. Uh, the next level is more expert level of delegation is goal oriented delegation. This is when you've delegated so much to your EA and office, 
this often takes many years uh, of delegation and and hundreds of pieces of feedback. Uh, but you are you, you've told your EA what your personal and professional goals are. You review your goals with your EA in depth, maybe every quarter. Um, and because your EA is so aligned uh, with your goals and has gotten so, gotten so much feedback, they can proactively start to find things to help you based on just your goals. Uh, now, this is not something you can typically achieve out of the gate. Um, this requires lots of investment, but this is when delegation starts to feel really magical because your EA comes to you and says, hey, I know your goal uh, this year is X. I have this idea that I'm starting to work on, or hey, I've already started to work on this. Can I just get your thumbs up? And you're like, yes, I didn't even have to delegate it. Uh, you just knew my goals and you've started working on it. And then the final level of uh, delegation, what we call kind of mastery of delegation. This is world class, and you know I only know a few delegators who really reach this level. Uh, we call it clairvoyant delegation, and this is when this is kind of like the nirvana of delegation, <laughs> where you and your EAs kind of missions are so in alignment, and um, that you're able to focus on just the things that you uniquely are positioned as a human to do. And you are focused on those things that give the world huge leverage that you're uniquely talented to do, and your EA can really handle the rest. And at this level, it's usually not one EA. You usually have a handful of EAs, a chief of staff. You've really built a personal team um, that enables uh, this sort of thing. And I think mediocre delegators, when they hear this, think that it's probably not possible. Um, but I know it's possible. I've, uh, I've experienced it, and I won't say that I experience it continually, but you get glimmers of this uh, level of delegation and it is really sweet. Cool. That is really helpful. And I think, you know, those early levels, I almost think for our entrepreneurs, for the folks listening to this, I think the hardest part of the early levels for them might be choosing what it is, like the clarity as to their goals and what they need to get done in the short term. Yep. And that could be a good exercise to say, like, if I were to start working with an EA, what, what are my goals? What am I working towards? What are the projects that they could jump in on? I think that's exactly right. I think what you should do is write down what are your goals, personal, professional for the year, break them down into sub goals, and then start thinking like, if I had an assistant by my side today, what would I have them do? And there's always a bunch of things. <laughs> and that is, that becomes the really starting point for building a relationship with the yeah, and that's actually how we onboard clients at Athena is we cool. do a two-hour deep dive with clients on their personal professional goals, um, their most pressing projects, their long-term aspirations. And then we pick, you know, two or three things out of the gate and we say, hey, let's, we think this is the right place to start. And you can't do all these things at once. It's usually one or two things and you work on it until um, it's really working. And then you keep layering on uh, additional tasks over time. Cool. Um, I don't know if you want to touch on the principles I got. I was super interested in the principles and methods of delegation as well. Yeah. So um, let's do methods of delegation. So this is pretty straightforward. There are a few different ways you can delegate to your assistant. And most people do it in the, the, the worst way, <laughs> uh, which is with their thumbs or their fingers. So, you know, the, the slowest way to delegate is on your phone. And you're like typing a message. It's just got two two digits. That's that's dumb. Uh, the the next <laughs> best way to delegate is at your computer. You've got ten digits. That's much faster, um, and that's a fine way to delegate. But it's actually very slow. Uh, the the 
kind of step up from delegating with your fingers is to delegate by voice. And this is where we really push our clients to challenge themselves um, because delegating by voice does take practice. It's like going to the gym. You have to kind of like create a new habit. But once you've unlocked the power of voice delegation, it is so good <laughs> because you delegate in between meetings on an Uber, you know, you're going for a walk and it just unlocks this sense of like freedom and leverage with delegation. And so, you know, in between meetings at um, Thumbtack, I used to, you know, have 12 hours of meetings straight. And at the end of the day, I'd have a pile of emails. And what I soon learned was, well, I could delegate in between meetings. And so as I walk between meetings, I'd pull up a voice note and I'd say, hey, I just met with uh, Brian. We talked about X, Y, and Z. Please pre-draft an email that says this and set a reminder in two months to follow up. And boom, then I walk into the next meeting. And then at the end of the day, I have a dozen um, emails pre-drafted. I have calendar reminders set. And instead of kind of accumulating this debt of things to do, I'm able to delegate on the fly. Um, you can also um, delegate just longer things. So when we did peer reviews at Thumbtack, it was always a process you know, people don't normally look forward to. It's a lot of work uh, to type up all these reviews. And I would just go for a walk uh, through San Francisco for a whole day. And I'd pull up a name and I'd say, okay, I'm going to talk about Brian now. Here's some things I love working with him. Here's some places he's struggling. Oh, here's a good example of that. And I would just kind of ramble for 10 hours. And my EA would take all these notes, you know, have them all transcribed, and then order them into something coherent. And then I'd go through it for one final pass. And it turned kind of a painful process into something that was actually quite enjoyable. Um, the next step up from voice delegation is Loom videos. Uh, this You can't do it all the time. But for things that involve interaction or showing your EA something, doing a Loom video is very powerful. It's like, hey, here's my inbox. Uh, could you help pre-draft these sorts of emails in the future? Here's what I would say on this one. You know, this email is from an investor. You don't need to pre-draft that for now. I'll handle, handle those. And you can kind of uh, digitally have your EA sitting at your computer. Um, mm. And that can be very powerful. And then the final method of delegation is what I call automated delegation or proactive delegation, which is when you teach your EA um, to proactively find things they can do on your behalf. And so this is part of the training in Athena is the EAs come in, they help tackle your first couple projects. And once those are in place, then they proactively look in your inbox and your calendar and say, okay, we know Brian's goals are X, Y, and Z. I see some things on his calendar that need fixing. I'm going to like proactively suggest these. And so you'll get an email from your EA that says, hey, here's three things I think I could help you with this week. Would you like help with? Just give a thumbs up and I'll start working on it. And you might say no on a few of them, but over time, the kind of EA learns your styles and preferences and then is proactively suggesting more and more things. And that's the, the real magic of delegation is when you have a partner you've built who is proactively helping, helping you delegate. This is like blowing my mind a little bit. It's, uh, <laughs> we haven't, I haven't, I've worked with EAs in the past and never thought about it, never framed any of the work this way. And um, I think that's, it's a real unlock for thinking about how, you know, it's very easy to go into an EA and sort of think like, well, here's how I work now. And here, like not think about it in a, in a way with a framework behind it or with like projects driving it. Um, it's so, so smart. I mean, it makes sense. You've done a lot. Yeah. Um, and if I, if I had to say one thing to people, it's to really practice voice delegation. And mm -hmm. we, we created an app at Athena that encourages you to do this. It's a voice-based app, but my EAs, when they send me, 
something to review, I actually ask them, I'm like in the email at the bottom, say, please respond by voice note. Because it can be kind of uh, just momentum. You get an email and you start to reply to it. And I see that note. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know what? Better than typing with my fingers is just talking back. And so I say, hey, this was helpful. You know, change X, Y, or Z. And if you, um, you know, really commit to practicing this voice-based delegation, it unlocks uh, incredible leverage. Amazing. That is so, so helpful. I really appreciate you going through it. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll be respectful of your time. We've got one minute here. I've got one final question for you. It's kind of, um, it's one that we've asked everyone uh, who's come on the podcast and it's a little bit of a tricky one. So I'll sort of like talk for a long time while you think about your answer a little mm-hmm. bit, but there's a question that I always forget who asked it. Um, either Reed Hastings or whichever the Netflix or the LinkedIn founder, one of those two asked on this podcast. He said, if there was a billboard that entrepreneurs, early stage entrepreneurs had to drive by every morning and you could put something on that billboard, uh, what would you put on there to kind of remind them uh, as they're going to work each day? What is, what is the thing that they should be thinking about or working on? And uh, I'll start. I hopefully I gave you enough time rambling to think about the answer. Yeah. I would just say uh, pick a problem and a product or a business that you want to commit a decade to because good things take a long time. You know, a good relationship, romantic partnership takes, you know, years and decades to compound. Uh, friendship is the same and business is no different. There's no, uh, there's no consistent path to zero and a billion or zero and, you know, even 10 million uh, over a, a few years. Uh, good things have to be invested in for the long term. And so that's true of uh, hiring EA as well. And we really encourage our clients and we hire EAs who are looking to build decade plus partnerships because compounding is very powerful, but mm. you've got to stick in it for the long term to get all the benefits of compounding, whether that's in your relationships or with your EA or building a business. So, um, you know, if you take that long term mindset, think you're more likely to capture that upside and also have less frustration and disappointment along the way. You know, Thumbtack's been over a decade and it feels like we're just getting started. But, (laughs) you know, I think we had unrealistic expectations in the beginning about how long it would take. Uh, But uh, we stuck in it and uh, allowed that compounding to happen. And we've uh, been lucky to have lots of success because of that. Amazing. That is such a good way to end. Thank you so much for coming on. This was wildly helpful. I loved it. So thank you. My pleasure. And I'm always happy to jam on uh, on delegation and how to get the most leverage out of a personal team or EA. So I'll share my email and phone number and you're welcome to share it with listeners and people can reach out. And I'm happy to always jam one-on-one with uh, fellow founders. Amazing. Thank you so much. This was the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got an idea and a full-time job, come work with us. Apply at gettacklebox.com and we'll get back to you in 72 hours. Have a great week.